1: This is Chapter 208 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. And coming up, healthy eating advocate and kids book author Camilla Alves McConaughey shares the one food she absolutely cannot eat. We chat with Rosie Walsh about what it takes to write a really cracking story. Plus, I'll introduce you to Sarah Bladel, who has been voted Denmark's most popular author no less than five times. Rare is the child who isn't picky when it comes to food. Whether it's a refusal to try anything new or an adherence to foods of a specific color, true story, I once knew a kid who would only eat things that were orange. Meal times can be a battle of wills. In the new book, Just Try One Bite, author Adam Mansbach, he of the best-selling book Go the F to Sleep, and healthy eating advocate Camilla Alves McConaughey, have some fun with the perennial parental nightmare by flipping the dynamic on its head. In their book, it's the parents who are the picky eaters and the kids who are begging them to eat. I had a chance to chat with Camilla via Zoom about the book and her own personal food battles. I'm not a mom, but I have six nieces and nephews, and there's more than, a, more than one picky eater in that bunch. And I'm going to assume that this book stemmed from having picky eaters of your own.
0: Look, I think that every parent goes through stages where the kids are picky about something related to food. Um, obviously, obviously, it would be that rare, you know, the, the rare case, but majority of parents, they go through, especially if you have multiple kids, you don't have to be at home. And absolutely. And not only, you know, they've, they've been you know, had their picky stages, but it, it changes what they're picky about and when they're picky about, right? All of, even if they're a great eater, I have one child that is like, he eats so good, but then it'll be like, Oh, I love this so much. And then I'll go and you know, buy the stuff. And then the next day it's like, no, I don't like it anymore. You're like, what do you mean? Like You just told me you, you love this. So no, you got to, you know, so um, it, I think it's a challenge that, you know, majority of the parents go through. Where did this
1: idea come from for the book to, to flip who the picky eaters are on its head? Because we
0: have the kids trying every trick in the book, literally, to get their parents to eat healthier. It's so true. Look, we want it to be funny. We want it to have fun with this topic, right? A lot of times it's not really funny and fun, right? It it gets heavy when it doesn't need to be. And um, look, I'm not here, you know, to tell parents what to feed their kids, you know, to follow this or follow that. But I am here to give a reminder that the conversation around food, how does it work? Where it comes from? What's good? What's not? How does it all work? Uh, with your body, it's an extremely important conversation. And I think that the earlier you do that with the kids, I'm a big believer of this, the earlier you do that with the kids, most likely you're going to be setting them up for a lifelong of good habits. And when we looked at that, you know, that passion of continue having that conversation, we're like, what's the best way to do it? Then create a book that we are giving the kids the power. They are the powerful ones. Writing the book, they're making, they're, they're getting after their, their parents, and because um, I see that in my own household. Once you give the kids the knowledge, and once you give them, you know, the power of making their own choices with certain things, it might take a while, but eventually they start to choosing. The, the better for you things you know i have an example with my daughter which you know we were talking a lot about food coloring and dyes and all of that and she understood but it took her a while to start practicing and i remember like it was yesterday when i was like you know we were at the supermarket i was like Do you want to get a cupcake and she was just like you know she turned to me and she's like no look at that like it's got it's like neon green it's got like all the Calling. I don't want that like and I was like quietly I, just, I play cool right but I'm like quietly going yes okay the proud mom moment <laughs> they're like she's she's getting it now now she's practicing right on her own uh so it takes a while it is you know it is um a labor of love to to take the time to have those conversations but it's a well worth one because as you know again if you're setting up your kids to healthy, ha- better for you habits. I don't even like to say healthy, but just better for you habits. It, you know, it's better than having the conversation later on where they can be dealing with things that are way worse for them, right? I do like that the message of the book too,
1: that there's this thing, uh, uh, this idea of everything in moderation. Like if you eat healthy most of the time, it's okay to have that cupcake or in this, in the, in the case of this book, the donut holes at the end of the day.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think it's super important to share this with parents because we're not preaching being perfect. I'm not perfect, but you know what I mean? Like we're still have our, our stuff that we're not supposed to do, but in moderation. So we do bring that up in the book of like, that was very important to me. To make sure that that came clear about, you know, it's okay to have your ice cream, your donut holes, but just not every day, just more now and then, you know, it's okay to enjoy all those things and, and the fun that goes with it.
1: So what's the food you go to after
0: as a treat to yourself, if you've been eating healthy for a while? Okay. So, you know, as a treat to myself, I love chocolate. Mm. I love chocolate. Uh, Right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, but I must say this, I've done what I have done, you know, my kids have caught me. I still have my hidden stash in the (laughs) entry and they caught me, right? One day and I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, okay, you're right. Like I got to do better. And I started going in the journey of like, you know, retraining my palate because I still love white chocolate. And that's the worst kind of chocolate that you can have. And my friends would go, oh, just go to dark chocolate. And I'll try dark chocolate. Like, this is horrible. Like, I don't like it. And what people sometimes don't understand, and this is scientifically proven, is that you have to retrain your palate. So if you're used to something that's really sweet, over a lot of sugars, when you try something that's not, it just your palates you know I don't like this I don't want it right so I slowly retrained my palate like slowly went down from white to milk to the you know 80% to the seven. like just slowly <laughs> going down um I should say the other way around sorry but you know slowly going down and now like I have you know I found my my treat which is this uh vegan chocolate it's got hazelnut inside I love hazelnut and it, it really feels like a treat when I have it. But I'm like, you know what? I don't feel bad after I have it. Now, if I have white chocolate, I actually don't feel well. My body lets me know this is not good. It's not making me feel good. So I can't even have it anymore.
1: I read in, uh, uh, in your little bio in the book, says you didn't try mushrooms until about like two years ago, <laughs> which I think is really funny. I'm sure there are people out there who have that food that – they just, they couldn't, and I'm very, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that you're on the, the mushroom bandwagon, but <laughs> what I want to know is, is there still a food where you're like, nope, not going to touch it, hands over the
0: mouth, not going to eat it? Uh, salmon. Okay. So I've tried, but I, I really have tried like I really have tried. This mushrooms I was like I've tried a little bit I was like no. And now I love, you know, now I I now I eat them. Um but salmon's too and I've tried so many different ways. The only way that I eat salmon I found I went to the sushi place and they had white salmon which I've ne- had never heard of it. And that salmon I love. But everything else it's like I've known to cook a really good salmon. And I have no idea what it tastes like.
2: Like I literally
0: <laughs> have to go to my husband. Okay. You try it. Is, that is it enough? Okay, great. All right. Good. I cook it, but I have no idea what it tastes like. It's not, it's too fishy for me.
1: Uh, I'm on the same boat as you. The other way I eat it, if it's raw and sushi, I can't eat it cooked.
0: It's sushi. right. No. So I,
1: told, I totally get it. But before I let you go, I guess, you know, if their parents are listening to this conversation and like, yes, the book is fun and there's a lesson in there. What's, what do you hope that, you know, what's, a, what's something that parents can do to like start this journey today for their
0: kids? Honestly, I think that it's making the journey with food fun. Take the pressure out of trying to be perfect or taking the pressure out of I'm doing so bad or I'm doing so good, whatever that is. Like food should be fun. And if you can really... Um, include your kids into the process of cooking and being in the the kitchen, understanding what it is, like, how do you mix this and you mix that, like that journey and that connection with food, we will, we will have a relationship with food for the rest of our lives. So to try to ignore that, it's not necessarily something they're going to have to get to at one point in life, right? We all have to. So start early, just start early. And just again, instead of being so focused on healthy, 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 just try to, don't put pressure on yourself. Just look at what you're doing and then ask the question yourself, how can I do a little better? That's it. You know, if you're using a lot of sugars, how can you cut that out? How can you cut that in, you know, in half? If you're doing a lot of processed foods, how can you cut that? And then do this small changes for the long term that you can, it can be sustainable. And then you're gonna start seeing changes, then you go to the next level. It doesn't have to be, you know, oh, everything out, like you know what I mean. It doesn't have to be that pressure doesn't have to be that. So that will be that will be my my take on it.
1: Well, thank you for your time today. We've been talking to Camilla Alves McConaughey. The book is Just Try One Bite. You know, good luck with the journey with this book. It's really a lot of fun. And uh, my my picky nephew who only eats Eggos, peanut butter and jelly is uh, getting a copy of this book.
0: (laughs) So let me know if he likes it. (laughs) I will. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a good one.
1: You could say Rosie Walsh's new book is a love story wrapped in a mystery. Or maybe it's a mystery with a love story at its heart. But no matter how you describe it, the love of my life is an entertaining page-turner, or to use Rosie's words, a really cracking story. She sets it up for us,
3: of course. Um, so, the love of my life is a story of Emma and Leo, who seem to the outside world to be, I guess, the happiest couple you've ever known. Um, their lives going well. Emma has a great uh, career as a marine biologist. And Leo is an obituary writer, a very successful one. They have a gorgeous daughter. They live in a beautiful ramshackle old house in an old part of London. But um, at the beginning, Emma is waiting to find out if her cancer treatment has worked. And Leo is dealing with his grief and fear by writing her obituary in secret. Um, But this turns out to be one of the biggest mistakes he's ever made, because in the course of basic research about Emma's life, he discovers that his wife, the love of his life, is not who she says she is. And so begins a, you know, a, a pretty terrifying journey for him to discover who he has actually married.
1: I love the description of this book as it's a love story wrapped up in a thriller, or maybe you might see it as a thriller with a love story at its heart. Why write it in, in this particular way? Because love really seems to be the overarching theme here.
3: It is. I mean, it's a book of many themes and um, I'm always amused by the idea of, you know, talking about the themes of my book because they kind of write themselves, really. They come with the plot. <laughs> um, they're seldom intentional. My only intention ever really is to write a really cracking story. Um, but for me, this this kind of interesting crossover between love story and sort of psychological thriller is something that's happened quite naturally. Um, I just for me, it's just such a rich seam to be mining. Of those kind of really huge moral dilemmas and sort of relatable horrors of, you know, what would you do if you discovered that your partner or the love of your life or the person you love most was not even who they say, you know, who they say they are. If even their name was um, was false, what would you do? Um, and for me, that's that's actually more of an exciting experience as as a writer to write that than than writing a book where, you know, at the beginning, a woman gets out of bed and discovers, you know, her husband's been murdered on the bathroom floor. <laughs> I want to know what happens when she gets up in the morning and discovers that her husband has told her a small lie that, that you know, that could have huge ramifications for them.
1: Now Lies have a way of snowballing. Uh, Secrets have a way of always being more harmful than the person keeping them ever intends them to be. And you would think that after all this time that humans, whether they're real or fictional, would realize that maybe it pays to just be honest with the people we love.
3: Well, you'd think that, but I have a four and a half year old and um, he's just discovered lying. And good Lord. (laughs) And it's fascinating watching him because he still hasn't really, he intellectually understands that lying isn't great, but he, you know, it, it doesn't really occur to him. Why would I bother telling the truth about something naughty that I've done when I can make up a story and hope to get away with it? But of course, you know, that spills into his everyday life. Like he said the other day, yeah. Someone chopped off my finger, so I had to go to the finger shop and get a new (laughs) finger. It's it's really fascinating, you know, from a young age. Either that or he's
1: following in your footsteps as a storyteller.
3: Oh, good Lord. I mean, I really hope for for the sake of the publishing world that that does not happen. He (laughs) He is not ready for storytelling that one. He's wild. So I, I
1: imagine that that some of uh, his antics or his personality did make his way into Ruby, who's who's the the young child in this book of Emma and Leo.
3: <laughs> That's a nice question. I mean, I've never based any character that, that I've written in any of my novels um, on a real person living or dead um but I find that the people that I write are a patchwork of my lived experiences with other people and so yes there are several things there's a scene where Emma tells her daughter Ruby that you know the cancer treatments worked and that mummy's going to be okay she doesn't have to go to hospital anymore for the horrible medicine and Ruby is indifferent and just says oh look I I I have a beetle called Mr (laughs) Chloris I my son just came out with some story about a man called Mr. Cloris a few months before I wrote that and and I was still laughing about it a few months later so it went in but that's a lovely thing about publication week you know the people who you love most start reading your book and of course they find all of these funny little things these funny memories that I've buried there especially for them and I get I get so many messages from friends and family saying oh you called your dog after so and so or your son said that thing that my son said. (laughs)
1: Now, your lead characters, as you mentioned at the top, have interesting jobs. Emma is a marine biologist. Uh, Leo is an obituary writer. What sort of research did you have to do to flesh out these characters?
3: Oh, my gosh. I thought the research was never going to end, which was a good thing, actually, because it was absolutely fascinating. Um, and at times I nearly kind of ran away with the obituary circus or <laughs> ran off to do a master's in marine biology. Um yeah, I mean, I for me, a bit of sort of surface level detail is not enough. I need to fully immerse myself in in those worlds, and so I spent quite literally years um, researching bro- both marine biology and the world of obituaries. And of course, well, I guess obviously, marine biology is a you know is a, it's a well known area with research ongoing around the world in academic um, and non academic institutions. People seem to know less about obituaries. Um, I certainly didn't know that much um but that for me proved utterly fascinating there's a whole community of obituary writers around the world they even have an obits conference every year <laughs> where they all fly into various locations in the states um to sort of <laughs> swap trades uh, swap stories um rather and um That work work took me into conversations with obituary writers around the world. It took me into the offices of the the Daily Telegraph in London, which I didn't realise when I started out, but it turns out that it's considered like the gold standard um, in obituary writing. So I would say I've got probably close to 100 reference books and 100 notebooks, just absolutely groaning with notes and thoughts and transcripts of interviews and, yeah, it was pretty. <laughs> it was pretty extensive. So my acknowledgements is- section of the book just goes on for pages because there's so many people to thank.
1: I have a, a note here to ask how marine biology and obituary writing are similar.
3: That's a really interesting question, and I guess yeah, there there are similarities because, you know, I to somebody who's not spent much time thinking about obituaries or reading them. It's, you know, it's essentially it's it's a job involving dead people. And of course, that's not what it is at all. Um, There's a section in the book where Leo talks about his work and how, you know, how an obituary writer's currency is life, not death. And how their only their sole focus is on the portrait of the person that they're trying to capture, you know, the textures, the colours memories that other people have of them and particularly in the case of the daily telegraph in london which is where i did a lot but by no means all of my research they're known for writing about kind of crazy arist- british aristocrats with absolutely mad lives um and and of course you know emma is emma is studying uh life in her job as as a marine biologist specifically she's an intertidal ecologist um and that's about the zone where um it's the zone, the zone of the coast that's submerged at high tide but exposed at low tide. So to be in an, uh, any kind of an organism living in there, you've got to be able to survive all sorts of extremes. You've got to be able to live out of the water and underwater. You've got to be able to cope with all sorts of stress. So again, in that way, she she's looking at you know quite forensically at, at life in the way that Leo does. Although for her, it's under a microscope. And for Leo, it's very much with the voice of uh, sort of almost like a fictitious, a fictional narrator.
1: I want to say as an aside, I loved Sheila, who is Leo's co-worker and all the mystery that you have surrounding her and how maybe she's just a really good researcher because that's what obit writers and and people who are journalists do. But she's
3: one of my favorite characters (laughs) in your book. We'll never know. We'll never know about (laughs) you. Somebody asked me in an interview the other day, actually, who my favorite character was. And I said, oh, Sheila. She was really disappointed. she said, oh, she's but she's only a minor character. She's great, so i'm with I'm totally with you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so one more yeah. question yeah. before I let you go, Can you have more than one
3: love of your life? Oh gosh, what a fantastic question. I mean, as a mother of two children, I guess it's quite easy to say yes. Um, my son came five and five years ago, and he is the love of my life, and then my daughter came two years ago. And she's the love of my life. And prior to their births, my partner was love of my life. So, yes, do I believe you can have two romantic loves of your life at the same time? I do not. All right. No.
1: Well, we'll leave it there. Rosie Walsh, the new Mm -hmm. book is The Love of My Life. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. One of the things I love about putting this podcast together is getting to introduce readers to authors they haven't yet had a chance to pick up and read. Sarah Bledel is a crime fiction writer who's been voted Denmark's most popular novelist for several years running. She shared why she's excited for U.S. readers to get their hands on her latest novel, A Harmless Lie.
2: It's the first time I bring my protagonist, Louise Rick, into my story as just a private person. She is normally investigating every, every kind of... Of crimes. Uh, She's been uh, on the homicide department in Copenhagen. She's been leading the missing persons department in Copenhagen. But in Harmless Lie, she's brought into the story uh, because of her brother and her sister-in-law. And in this story, I wanted to see how she would react and how she could put herself in the situation of just being a relative and not in charge of an investigation and that was a very new way for me to 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 meet her and it's been very exciting for me to to have this book out because my readers of the earlier Louise Rick book will know that she is a very committed police detective she is um, she loves her work she is not working hard because she is trying to uh, achieve a a higher uh, job situation she's working hard because she's committed to what she's doing and i like that very much about her but um, in a harmless lie i'll take her back to where i i grew up um myself and and the life when as a teenager when you are filled with the um, insecure you are filled with being a little bit over the edge, you're trying to be brave, and you're not totally brave. And, you know, all these thoughts and feelings that you have as a teenager. In Denmark, it is very common to go on a school or a field trip when you are around 13 with your school class. Do you do that in the US too? Not in the way that
1: that it it happens in the book. And I was going to say, you know, you're talking like this experience may be something that American readers aren't exactly used to, but those feelings of insecurity and being a teenager and want to impress boys or want to impress girls and wanting to be friends with the cool girl, like that's totally something that I think transcends whether you're
2: American or whether you're Danish. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's the same, isn't it? And I, I have the feeling when um, when I was starting on the on the story that I knew that uh, Louise's sister-in-law, she is disappearing, and um, and to begin very very early in the story, and that is actually very uh, very, very of co- I, I totally understand that, that the police is looking into into Luis's brother to see if he has anything to do with the disappearing of his wife. Years, years, years ago, there was a school field trip to Bornholm. It's a small, small island between Denmark and Sweden, but it's very close to Sweden. And on that school trip, a young one of the girls called called Susan, she's disappearing and her body is never found. So they will actually not knowing if she is dead or if she disappeared for some other reason. But now in the beginning of a harmless life, her body is found here many, many years later. And when I start that story and start going in kind of back memory lane, being a teenager myself, it, it's, 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 it hit me that consequences as a teenager is very, very different from consequences as a grown-up because the worst thing that could happen for a 13-year-old girl, probably also a boy, but for for these girls is that the parents is finding out what is going on in that school trip. I mean, oh, please do not call the parents or you you cannot let my parents know uh, that we actually jump out the window very late at night and hang out with some of the local guys. And that story is from the real life um, because I had a... Speech uh, a year before I sit down and wrote this story, uh, and I had a speech. And very often at the end of my speeches, uh, there is one in the pub. There is one of the people who are listening coming up to me and say, "Hey, will there be a new Louis Rick novel soon?" And I think I, I said yes. No, I was on stage and I was saying it out loud. And I said yes. I think there will. I think it will be about a school trip going to Bonholm and. After when I finished, a woman came up to me, a woman actually that I've been going in the same class with school class. And she said, Sarah, I remember the trip we had to Bonham. Do you remember when we jumped out the window and met with these local guys? <laughs> I was like, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> so they didn't invite me to do it. They did it by themselves, but it kicked off the whole story. So in the U.S., Th- this this book this type of story
1: we we call it Nordic War. and I guess it, it it's a, a definition that we give to books and to mysteries that are a little bit darker they're a little bit more atmospheric and and the main police characters they're not perfect they're not heroes they're they're humans but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I don't know if that's strange for you to hear your book described that way because this is how you write it but why do you think these kinds of stories are having I mean they are hugely popular in the U S right now.
2: And of course, I'm very happy to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what we do is to balance, I think, uh, to balance private life and professional life as, for example, the police investigation. Uh, But I see that also in, in other books around the world. I mean, other crime fiction. I think it's just because we did that very, very strictly to begin with. We have... A social matter very often in our books. And we have this private life. But in my first Louise Rick novels, I was very aware that I should balance the professional life, her professional life, and her private life. So it was not all about picking up her, picking up a child from kindergarten or can I I have to cook dinner? I mean, everyday stuff is everyday stuff for all of us. So I would It was not my intention to bring a lot of it into the book, but at the same time, I wanted to show that she's human, as you say. I wanted to show that she has a normal life, she has a private life, and she has to deal with this. So it's a balance being, being a normal person, being human, and also being a professional. Because if she's only just professional, You can just replace her. You can just fire her, put in a new one in her job. You have to relate to her in some some way. You have to feel that you know her. You have to care for her. And in a harmless life, she she has a lot to lose, I feel. I feel it's a very strong story about her because she is so personally involved. And it's not just about feelings, but it's about her life and her family's life.
1: Full disclosure, this was the first Louise R- Rick book that I picked up. And I have to tell you, I was immediately invested in her and her life and her situation. And I know at the very top of the interview, you talked about how you're putting her in a different situation. She isn't the the investigator investigating the, cl- the case because she's too close. And you really do get her being torn between how the cops are treating her family. And she knows full well
2: that this is the way she would she would treat this family, too, mm-hmm. because it's suspicious. Exactly. And and that was an interesting situation to bring her in because she have been on the other side of the table for many years. So she knew what was going to hit her and hit her family. Tell
1: me what it's like to be voted the most popular novelist, not once, not twice, not even three times, but four times in Denmark. And
2: actually, five times.
1: Five Ooh. times, they <laughs> have to update that bio of yours.
2: Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you so much. It is it is so wonderful, and it means a lot to me. I mean, it's it it's it shows me that people. You know what? Actually, actually, the thing that I'm most grateful um, about with with the, with that kind of honor and that kind of awards. Is every time people are picking up one of my books and spend time in my company, because when I write, I do it, and that it can sound, it can sound weird or strange, or maybe feels like I'm lying or trying to, to, to be something that I'm not. But, but it, every time I write a book, I am so into it, and I do not think about the readers. I will give it to after. I mean, I'm so into the story. It is here and now and it's real life. I feel that it is very real what's going on because I'm so involved with Louise Rigg and with Camilla Din and with the whole setting. So I feel so involved. So I do not think about, I have to read an audience with the story. I'm so much just into what is going on in the story. So having the feeling afterwards, after I've published a new book, that people have been looking forward to get it uh, in their hands and been excited about the, the publication and spending time with what I've just made up in my head. I'm, it, I mean, I'm so grateful about it. So, of course, it's wonderful with the honor and it's wonderful with awards, but every time people spend time in my company, it feels very special still after all these years.
1: And I think that means hopefully we will be getting a lot more books from you. Oh,
2: You're so kind. Thank you. <laughs> yes.
1: We've been spending some time today with Sarah Blanell. The new book is a harmless lie. Thank you for your time today. Talk. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you so very much. It was such a pleasure.
1: And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we explore a historical fiction horror story set in the desolate stretches of Antarctica that features probably one of the scariest monsters I've ever encountered in a book. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.